I was a uh, practicing clinician working in a home health agency model. I wasn't allowed to dose my patients as per best practice guidelines. So I said, there's gotta be a way to do this better. My, my grandmother and my grandfather, I started seeing them going in and out of long-term care. It started personal seeing the sick side of 80, and now it's been exciting to be part of Fox. Light bulb moment, like that's a complete game changer. You can see what we can do as a practice and as treating clinicians to really make 80, 85 look so much different than it did back that long ago. And boil it down into one say, it's quite simply this, it's be stronger, live better longer. Welcome to Fox Rehabilitation's Live Better Longer podcast, the podcast dedicated to clinicians who work with older adults. Today, special treat, I am joined, this is going to take a while to read, I am joined by co-author of Space Retrieval Therapy Step-by-Step, an evidence-based memory intervention, owner of Safe Swallowing Diagnostics, founder of Med SLP Advocacy Fund, professor at Teal College, and Ash's leader on space retrieval therapy, the one, the only, Dr. Jeanette Benegas. Welcome. Thank you for having me. That sounds so incredibly important, but I assure you I'm a professor and a clinician and just someone with a lot of knowledge. On Don't knock down that title. You earned that title. I did. That's impressive. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I am also joined by Fox speech language pathologist, Aaron Rundio. Aaron, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, the reason Aaron is here is because, Jeanette, I have no clinical training or clinical background. I, I host a podcast. I have a television background, but uh, Aaron will help me out today in case I slip up. Okay. And then I'm assuming right. that, Aaron, you may have questions, too, for Dr. Jeanette Benegas. Yeah, definitely. And if at any point, Aaron, you want to take over the interview, I give you the freedom to do that. Great. Thanks. Okay. So, <laughs> Jeanette, how did you get interested in spaced retrieval therapy? It's an interesting story, at least to, to me. Um, so I didn't have any interest in spaced retrieval therapy at all. I was a pediatric clinician. I had worked in private practice and then um, in the schools, and I was really unhappy with my job. So I had started doing some per diem work in nursing homes in the evenings and fell in love with the elderly population and was really frustrated, especially when it came to eating and drinking and swallowing. Um, this particular nursing home was a 100-bed facility, and everyone was on a thick and liquid. And it, it was that long ago that we really didn't have a lot of solutions to how to help these people. And I had met my now mentor, Michelle Bourgeois, at a state convention and told her my frustrations with all of this. And she said, oh, I've been wanting someone to, to study that for years. You can't, you can't find anything because there isn't anything. And, and I have money for a student and, and you should come get a PhD with me. And I graciously told her, no, thank you. <laughs> More than once, but within just a couple of months, she had convinced me and I uprooted my whole life and uh, moved to Columbus, Ohio for a PhD. And it was really her idea of using space retrieval to teach people um, eating and swallowing behaviors to help them avoid a modified diet. Until that point, I had no idea what space retrieval even was. I was a pediatric therapist, um, changing my whole path. Uh, and here I am today. So 
Yeah. It's destiny. It was meant to be. Yeah, it really was. I fought it. I fought it all the way. The, the story <laughs> is even crazier than that, but it was clearly supposed to be my path in life. So, Wait, you talked about fighting it. When did you stop fighting it? I'm still fighting it. I don't want to be a professor. I am not a researcher. I, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I just, um, I just tell people, I just walk through the doors that God opens for me. And I close the door and, and walk out of the rooms that he's moving me out of. And I just, I'm, you know, open to a lot of opportunities and ideas and, you know, just go wherever the wind takes me, but I, I'm still fighting it. <laughs> I think that's what that's what makes Jeanette so approachable, though, is that first and foremost, she's a clinician. So when I met her, which we met at like a nursing home in rural Ohio, and I was kind of taking over the PRN position that she was doing. And she had asked me, what's your favorite memory um, technique that you use? And I was like, well, I mean, I use space retrieval. And she goes, oh, yeah, tell me more. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And I, I remember I printed you off a sheet of like the data, how I kept the data. And you were like, oh yeah, by the way, I um, studied this and I'm kind of the expert on it. And I was like, oh, and then I took your course on MedBridge and I was like, I know this woman, she's famous. So first and foremost <laughs> clinician. Yeah. And uh, that's what makes it also so uh, use space retrieval is so useful. Um, and I think your work studying it with um, compensatory swallowing strategies is incredibly useful and so functional. Honestly, like it inspires me to go and get my PhD for real, because it's something that we Europe. need research on. <laughs> yeah, we really do. We really, really do. Um, there's still, I don't really research anymore. So there's certainly... Uh, at least not right now, I'm not researching. There's certainly many, many avenues and open open doors for that. You know, there's room for everybody to be doing it. And I ha I still follow it. Um, obviously, I've, I've opened up these endoscopy business for swallowing, so I'm not doing the dementia as much, but I still follow it. And there's not, there's not a ton of spaced retrieval stuff coming out right now, so. You can get Aaron to do the research for you. I guess. So when I find a minute, I'll write a grant. We'll get going. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Jeanette and Aaron. So when you meet a patient for the first time, how do you explain spaced retrieval therapy to them? I don't know that I necessarily explain it. I usually I, I like a very functional approach to my therapies. And so if someone is complaining of memory loss or if it's in a a nursing home or an assisted living and staff is complaining of memory loss or, or something that might relate to memory loss, even if they haven't identified it as that, I try to identify those things. What's the problem? What's the, the decline in function that the person isn't remembering to do anymore or maybe isn't doing it as safely? Where's the decline and what can we do? If we could just fix this one thing or these one or two things, would it improve the patient's quality of life? And so I have more of a conversation of what are your goals or, or what would help this this client or resident be more successful. And, and then I, I kind of go from there. It, it's not necessary, you know, if they're agreeing to have therapy, I just tell them, I can help you with this. We're going to practice it over and over and over again to help you remember so you can do the XYZ thing. I, I keep it pretty simple. I try not to overcomplicate. Erin, I don't know if you do anything different. No, I, I, 
I would say I do the same thing, actually. Um, I don't necessarily explain the procedure to them, but I come at it with a functional approach, asking them what their needs are. Um, there are some patients that I do uh, maybe explain more the reason behind it because it does get so repetitive and they're kind of like, why are you asking me this question yeah. over and over? But that's really the only option. Yeah. I, I would say I just approach it from this is something we need to work on. This is how we're going to remember it. Right. Yeah. Same. I think if they start to get a little annoyed or irritated or they question, I just told you this, why are we doing it again? I will say something to the effect of, well, remember when school and you practiced your spelling words over and over or you used flashcards this is the same idea as that and saying it over and over or repeating it will help you remember that's normally how i'll explain something like that yeah speaking of research i tried to do some research on spaced retrieval therapy so there's two types of memories right there's declarative memory and there's non-declarative memory which is more procedural like hmm riding a bike, washing dishes. Mm -hmm. So when you do spaced retrieval therapy, you're trying to tap into that, the non-declarative. And you almost want it yeah. to become like automatic for them. Exactly. That's exactly it. Because especially with the dementia conditions, long-term memory is the last to decline. And so if you think about your daily life, you probably have the same morning routine. You do it in the same order every day. You'll put pick up your toothbrush with the same hand and put the toothpaste on the same way. That's procedural memory. And so we're trying to turn whatever we're teaching with space retrieval into a procedural memory. It's learning without knowing that you are learning it. And, and someone with um, a memory loss condition like dementia, you need to have automatics. And it's why a lot of times people can't tell you what they had for breakfast, but they could tell you about their wedding day or something about growing up. It's, it's that long-term memory, that story they've told a hundred times. It's the same kind of thing. So is repetition the key? Yes. Yes. Um, repetition of the exact response that you're trying to teach them. So that's a really, really important part of space retrieval. The lead question, the question that you're using to lead them to the answer or the action that you want them to be doing has to be exactly the same. The, the verbiage has to be exactly the same every time. So you ask them the lead question and then you have the target response, which is the response that you want them to say or do, or normally both, has to be exactly the same. The minute you change one word, you have given them something new to remember. So it's repetition exactly the same every single time. Wow. Okay, so I have a question. Would you consider spaced retrieval a type of errorless learning or just it is errorless learning, especially errorless. when you're using an external strategy or like a memory card that has the answer on it that you're constantly cueing them to? Like, where's the bathroom? You're pointing to the arrow over and over again. Where's the bathroom? Where's the bathroom? Errorless so learning is part of spaced retrieval. So there's there's four different foundational principles that make up the strategy and account for its success and errorless learning is part of that. So as you are giving the lead question and eliciting the target response, if you see them struggling, you know, more than a few seconds, they're not recalling that answer. Or if you find they're about to say or do the incorrect thing, you stop and you say, actually, the bathroom is that way. Where's the bathroom? That way. Why don't you show me? Where's the bathroom? 
that way. And so you immediately interrupt in a very positive way. You don't, you know, airless learning is positive. You don't say, no, normally I'm just like, actually, and, and you give them that correct answer. So yes, it's part of the foundational makeup of what makes it so successful. So space retrieval therapy is not a cure for cognitive issues, but can you explain how it maximizes independence? I normally use it, like as I've already said, um, for very specific things that people have lost in terms of function. So maybe there's a morning routine. This is a great example. I had a gentleman once that I was seeing in home health who lived alone in a trailer and he he would get up and take care of himself and then the son would check in on him at three after work and son discovered that he was showing up at three and dad was sitting in his chair watching tv not having gotten dressed for the day or eaten or or even you know made his coffee was just sitting in the chair he was still very able-bodied he could still do the things he just wasn't remembering his morning routine so what i did was i made him a morning routine book where i took pictures of his coffee maker he ate oatmeal every morning we made a little oatmeal station his oatmeal station his his toothbrush his toilet and one simple page with one picture of of the thing in his house with with a directive sentence that said i go to the bathroom next page i get dressed Next page, I make my oatmeal. Next page, I make my coffee. I put my dishes in the sink. I watch TV. And so my question, my lead question to him was, what do you do when you wake up in the morning? And his response was, I open my book. And so we kept the book on the nightstand and I taught him to open that book. Now, was he 100% successful? Absolutely not. But we included the family in that training. And so son could call you know 15 minutes after dad was supposed to be up and say dad have you opened your book oh no and sometimes he had and sometimes he hadn't but at least if he didn't it triggered that response oh oh i have to open my book yes. where it was at and he could start his morning routine that way and and he was very successful you know not every story is has that much success attached to it but it kept him living at home independently longer doing his morning routine. And now I don't, of course, in home health, you kind of lose track of them. So I don't know how long he was able to function like that, but the need um, that his family had identified that dad's not taking care of himself. He can still do it physically, but he's not remembering what he has to do. And so as long as we got him to remember those steps, that procedural memory of brushing my teeth, making my coffee was still there. He just needed to know to do those things. Um, so that's a really good example of how to keep someone independent a little longer. If you tried to teach them all of those steps, that would be impossible with space retrieval. You can only use it for one or two little concepts, but putting all those concepts in a book and teaching him to use the book is a, is a lot more effective. And then what can people do if they're not finding success with SRT? That's common. Um, what's really, really nice about space retrieval is it's very, very, very flexible. So when I wrote the book, as a clinician, coming into my PhD as a clinician, I knew I wanted my research to be very functional and clinically relevant. And also as clinicians, we're always looking for things that are evidence-based, right? We're supposed to be using evidence-based practice in our therapies. And so when we wrote this manual, um, Space Retrieval Step-by-Step, -step, 
that was the name of it. But I was very insistent that it include evidence. So we included this, the subtitle, an evidence-based memory intervention. And I had to fight the publisher hard on having an entire chapter that reviewed all of the evidence. I mean, from the early 1900s all the way to 2016 when we had started writing the book because we had to have a cutoff somewhere. I reviewed every single article. And what I learned as I did all of that was not one researcher has used the same timing protocol. Not one researcher has gone about the protocol in a specific way. And so certainly what we, we looked at when we were reviewing all of this was there are some timing intervals and strategies that were more effective than others. And so we came up with a standard protocol based on our review of all of the evidence. But what's nice is if people are struggling, if you're using our the recommendation for our standard protocol and people aren't learning, you can change the protocol. So you can change the timing intervals where you're asking more frequently. Or if it's one of those people who are really annoyed with saying it over and over again, maybe they have early, you know, mild cognitive impairment or something and they're, they're getting annoyed. You can build that protocol into your therapy doing something else and you can space out the practices longer. So you're not as annoying as they might feel that you are, but you're still doing that repetition to meet the goal. So um, changing the protocol timing is one of the best things that you can do. Um, the other thing that you could do is make sure that your target response is relevant to the person. If it's not relevant, if, if it's something you picked out of the air or a family member or a staff member said, oh, he can do this, they're not as likely to learn it. It has to be relevant. So you might need to tweak your target response. You might need to change the, the verbiage and the lead question a little bit. You should never do all of these things all at once. Change one thing at a time. Try it for a couple sessions. See if it's successful. And if it's not, you can keep making modifications. So um, we, we have a bunch of recommendations for that in our book and in my MedBridge uh, class, we talk about that. But there's lots of things that you can do. It's not like there's just this one protocol. And if you're not successful, oh, now we have to quit. You can keep modifying and changing it to try to reach the goal. So that's what's really, really nice is that there isn't one way. And I would, I would assume you would have to know your patient too for it to be most effective. Not necessarily. I mean, you know, in, in the article that I published that we were talking about earlier, I didn't know any of those people, right? They were just subjects in my study. And some some people learned learned what I set out for them to learn in, in, in four sessions. Um, others struggled. I, I think I hold the record for the longest amount of space retrieval sessions in publications because it was a dissertation and I could do whatever the heck I wanted and I was going to show success. So I stuck with that guy for 30 sessions. <laughs> but, but at 30 sessions, he learned, but we had to modify, you know, we had to make some changes along the way. And that's not you know, that was research. Sometimes we hear, well, researchers, you know, they can do whatever they want in a lab. And I am the first to say, we don't always have 30 sessions with our patients, right? So maybe right. this isn't realistic. But it's also not a unique therapy that SLPs own. So you can teach family members to be doing this to help support what you're trying to do in your therapy room that will help them learn a little. So maybe Maybe you're going to be with them for four weeks, but it's once a week or twice a week. 
you're going to have to get family or care team involved to support what you're trying to teach because once a week of this is not going to be effective. Uh, most of the research shows three to five times a week is what's really needed to get the result you're looking for. If you don't have that, getting someone else on the care team involved would be important. So this is in the speech language pathologist wheelhouse, the SLP wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. How do you get the other disciplines involved? So we took it over. It, it wasn't ours. It came out of the psychology world. It's it's actually, um, you know, with classical conditioning and aerialist learning, it's a psychology technique. It wasn't until the late 80s that people started applying it. There was like one or two studies where people used it with dementia. And then Jennifer Brush, um, who's from the Cleveland, Ohio area, and a close colleague of mine and friend, was a clinician at a nursing home and um, worked with one of the researchers who did a lot of early work on space retrieval. And he was a psychologist and they worked together and she started using it in research as a speech pathologist. And that's how it came to our field. So it wasn't ours. Really, I'd say Jennifer Brush is the one who is responsible for really bringing it in. And it just, you know, it took off. You know, there were a lot of other early researchers who started using it in, in their studies, all speech pathologists. And so we kind of took it over, knowing that PTs can use it, OTs can use anybody can use it, right? But we don't want to give our caseload away. <laughs> so I keep it pretty close to the vest that, you know, anybody could use this because I don't want to lose my caseload. If I'm trying to build a caseload, I don't want the PT to catch on that they could be doing this to teach someone transfer safety or walker use. And then where's my, my caseload, right? So um, what I do try to do is work closely yeah. on verbiage. Um, it's never about what I want. I work in a lot of buildings, right? So what one physical therapist says for walker use, I put, or let's go transfer. I put my hands on the chair, lean forward, and then push up. Like that's what one person might say in one facility, but then in another facility, that PT uses different verbiage. I use their verbiage. I work with them and I say, okay, if you're working with Mr. Smith, how would you tell him to stand up safely? And whatever they tell me, that's what I use. And then we have a conversation about, okay, I'm going to help him transfer safely using this therapy technique that I know. But when you're working with him, I need you to use these same exact words to cue him or prompt him because that will help, as, as I said, bring in the care team. That's going to help him faster. So that's usually how I will bring in other therapists instead of just telling them, you know, you could do this. Here's the manual. I, you know, I just work with them on, on verbiage or identifying things. I love working with physical therapists and um, physical therapy assistants. I've, I've had some wonderful PTAs that I've worked with over the years that have really caught on. And once they see it work once successfully, you have a friend for life. They will send you. Listen, it is my magic power. I, I seriously, when people ask me, how did you get them to remember that? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, wouldn't you like to know us SLPs? We really know how to do it. No, just kidding. I really do train. I do train caregivers on how to do it, but it is funny that when people like, especially physical therapists or occupational therapists ask, they remember that. And then they see us doing it and they're like, oh, okay. You're asking them a thousand times. 
Mm -hmm. I, I would interject here and say, because we haven't really brought this up and I don't know that there's a good place to talk about it, but as we talked about the repetition, early protocols, early research showed that you would practice verbally and then at the end have them perform the task. So if you're doing transfer safety, you would have this entire verbal session about transferring safely and at the end you would have them perform it. Something that Jennifer Brush and I built into the like standard protocol that we recommend now is that you have them do that task every single practice. So how do you stand up? I put my hands on the chair and lean forward and then push up great, do that for me. Because it's, you know, we're trying to build that motor memory too. And it's not yeah. about, space retrieval isn't about, can they say the thing? People is about, can they do the thing? And so as right. I'm yeah. people, if they don't say it, but they do it, I still count it as correct. And then I just have them say it um, just yeah. to reinforce. But yeah, having them do that task every single practice. And and then sometimes I get the question, well, when do you start the timer? I start the timer if I'm using timing intervals after they perform the task. So if it's five seconds, okay, do it. Then when they sit down, then I set the timer. I say, okay, we're going to do that again in five seconds. Set the timer, timer. And I don't use an audible timer because this isn't Pavlov's dogs, right? We don't want them to perform at the beep. I keep my phone on silent or I'm using my watch. And five seconds goes by, okay. Tell me again, how do you stand up safely? Put my hands on the chair, lean forward, push up. Okay, show me how to do that. They do it, then I start the timer. So consistently pairing it with the motor task that you're training. If you can. I know yeah. in our book, we use like a three-step directive of like dressing the lower half. You're not going to ask some dude to take his pants off and his belt and his underwear, like, right? It's true. Yeah. Every time. But what we did recommend then for something that's a large task like that, find the most relevant. So in that example, we said have them put on the belt because in real life, if, if you're trying to teach them to dress the lower half, if they put on the belt, but they haven't put on their pants, there's nowhere to put the belt to. And if they miss the underwear, no big deal. As long as they have on the pants, then that works. So trying to find that that one thing that would make the difference and that's the thing that you have them perform if it's a multi-step directive then that's what you would use yeah that's a really good recommendation yeah so um aaron before we go to break any more questions for jeanette because i was firing away questions and i'm like i hope aaron's like why doesn't he let me ask any questions so <laughs> now is your chance Ooh. Or you can think I, about I do, it. Just, you you want to okay. ask one now? Because we're going to take a break. You can ask it after the break. Oh, wait, let's ask it after the break then. Okay, so think about it for a second. So we're going to take a break. Okay. And more with Dr. Jeanette Benegas right here on the Live Better Longer podcast. So as we take a quick break, just a reminder to everyone who listens to this podcast in real time, because, you know, I know some people listen when it comes out. Others may wait a few weeks. So if you do listen in real time, just a reminder that this Thursday, May 18th, Fox Rehabilitation will be teaming up with the Dr. Carol B. Lewis, a legend in the world of physical therapy and geriatrics. I mean, she's lectured all over the world. She's lectured in 49 different states. She has her own lecture named after her at APTA's Combined Sections Meeting. So we are teaming up with Carol this Thursday for the webinar, Finding a Job with Purpose. It begins at 6.30 p.m. East. 
if you would like to register, you can go to Fox Rehabilitation's website. That is foxrehab.org. You can also go to the events section on our LinkedIn or Facebook page, and it's very easy to register. What is the cost of this event? It's absolutely free. So it all goes down this Thursday, May 18th, finding a job with purpose put on by Fox Rehabilitation and the Dr. Carol B. Lewis. We are back on Fox Rehabilitation's Live Better Longer podcast. I'm speaking with Dr. Jeanette Benegas about spaced retrieval therapy alongside Fox speech-language pathologist Aaron Rundio. All right, Aaron, did you think about your question? Now the floor yeah. is yours. Okay, so Jeanette, which situation do you feel like you get more carryover? Like safety, ADL, swallowing? Probably safety because for where the person is living, that's always the focus. So if it's a guy at home who needs to use his walker, his wife is going to be all over him to use the walker, right? So teaching the family member that verbiage to support long-term use, carryover, it's, it's a, and it's something people are doing all the time. So it's happening throughout the day. So as long as they're being reminded and using it, I think that's probably the most carryover. Something like an ADL, like if it's, you know, brushing their teeth, how many times a day do they do that? So it's, there's more repetition with something like safety than there is for an ADL. And swallowing, I believe there might, I think there was, I know, actually I met her at ASHA and I wish I could remember her name. There was someone who did a poster presentation on using it with swallowing strategies. Um, and she was so sweet. And I hope I hope she's building on that. But I think besides that, my publication is the only one. And that was, it was, you know, that was just the first look. It was a small study. There, there were some things that we could do to, to make sure to matter. Um, I just wasn't in the situation where I could continue to research. You know, I had babies and I stopped working for a while and was only a clinician again. Um, So I haven't built on that at all. So I don't use it. I do use it for swallowing strategies, but I use it pretty cautiously. Um, You know, if it's someone who needs a liquid wash, it's probably not realistic that they are going to use that liquid wash every single time. So I use it in situations where I'm not going to cause a safety situation if they're not doing the thing, if that makes sense. So I, I always tell people like, yeah, my study was great. There was a hundred percent success, but it was the only study, right? And the one guy had to have 30 sessions, <laughs> but it was a really good start to show we can apply it in this way. Just do it with caution because we need to replicate that. We need, we need more people showing that it's effective and building on it a little more before, you know, like, okay, you were on a puree, now eat the burger with your strategy. It's I'm a little more cautious there. But with safety, with people following up all the time, um, that's where I see the most carryover. All right. So Jeanette and Aaron, in closing, and radically switching gears right now, uh, Jeanette, I read that you are a Girl Scout leader. I am. And I am so tired. It's the end of cookie season. Our troop, what? our little seven-year-old... 
they moved 5,000 boxes since March 9th. Yay. I don't know. If you well, eight, I have a was... question. I have a question about one. Girl Scout cookies. Yes. But before I do that, apologies for me not wishing you a happy Better Hearing and Speech Month. Shame on me. <laughs> so hopefully both of you are enjoying Better Hearing and Speech Month. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> Is Better Hearing and Speech Month better than Physical Therapy and Occupational Therapy Month? 100%. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> See, we're giving some shine, some shine to the SLPs today. All right, so my final question. You are a Girl Scout leader. You moved massive units of Girl Scout cookies this season. Question for both you, Jeanette, and Aaron. What is the best Girl Scout cookie? Oh, that's so easy. It now, this I'm assuming this podcast goes out all over the country. Goes all over the so, world. Okay, Girl Scout cookies have different names depending on your a- local area baker. So in our region, it is the Samoa, but you might be living in an area where it's the Caramel Delight purple box. So uh, that's so easy. Caramel Delight. So, All right. Really? All right. Oh so wait, wait, wait. Aaron, wait, let Aaron speak. <laughs> and then I have an opinion on this too. Aaron? The, okay, this is hard because Tagalongs are my absolute favorite but the mint ones in the freezer it's another level i mean i could eat the mint with the thin mints all day i could eat like three boxes of those in like five minutes and a thin mint is a thin mint no matter where you live no matter the baker that's what it's called i mean it's a great name you can't right now respectfully i have to disagree with both of you because the perfect girl scout cookie I just ordered six boxes for me and my family. Has to be the dosi dough. Come on now. That oat peanut cookie, butter. the peanut butter, the balance, it's perfect. <laughs> I my band loves that cookie so much, we made a song about it. I'll send you the song. It's a popular one. That, the Samoa, the Thin Mint, um, those are probably three of the most popular. Now I was on the website not too long ago. That raspberry one sold out. I mean, we made a mistake there. We are true. We, 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 now listen, I'm a rebel. So we pre-sold them. We, we pre-sold because they went live on the website and I got up at 7 a.m. and I, I bought the 58 boxes that my troop pre-sold and I looked at it and I thought, should I just throw on a few more boxes? And, and, I didn't want to put my troops money at risk. I, I, and I thought, well, if you know, if people like them, we'll always, we'll, we can always get on and order more because they were for shipping only in our area. Our, our council sold 11,000 boxes in two hours and then they were gone. So what is, yeah, what's in the raspberry cookie? It's a thin mint. It's like a thin mint, but it's raspberry. Oh, and then I haven't, I ordered it, but I didn't get it yet. What are adventurefuls? Um, that is a brownie flavored cookie. Now don't be fooled. It's not, it's not soft like a brownie. It's crunchy like a cookie with a caramel center and chocolate across the bottom and then chocolate drizzle on the top. And that is a girl favorite. The Girl Scouts like that one, the the young kids. Okay. It's good. That one it's sold, good. that one sold out last year. That was the new one last year. But they, to try to address some of the the baking stocking issues. That's why they only did raspberry rally for shipping, thinking they could control the inventory a little better that way. But I mean, people got smart like me and they just got on. And even we, we charged our customer. It was like, if you bought 
in bulk, shipping came out to like a dollar twenty-five a box. So we charged six dollars for the box instead of five to help cover shipping, which apparently wasn't allowed. And then enough of us <laughs> that they allowed it as long as we disclosed. So yeah, people weren't dumb. They they just got on and ordered two hundred boxes. And can I can I say this? For- Let me say this in closing. This has to be the greatest podcast episode ever (laughs) regarding space retrieval therapy and Girl Scout cookies. Like, I don't know if it gets any better than this. On on how to safely eat the Girl Scout cookie using the liquid wash of milk with the thin mint. We could get a grant for this. For sure. I agree. (laughs) We're going to do it. So, Jeanette, thank you so much for your time. Aaron, thank you for your time as well. Of course. Thank you so much. So for Dr. Jeanette Benegas and Aaron Rundio, my name is Jim Shear, and we will see Yins later.